Philippians chapter 2. This is the time of year when many people enjoy watching their favorite Christmas movies. That's in part why they're on television all the time. But that's also why, if you're like me, you've bought your own. And so whether it's Christmas or not, you can watch them anytime you want. Uh, but one of, my, uh, one of my favorite movies, one of the ones that we like to watch as a family, is The Santa Claus the story of a regular guy uh, who becomes Santa Claus and has his life changed in some pretty profound ways. It's very much a, uh, a humorous story. And uh, one of the funniest scenes is where he has been arrested uh, mistakenly for kidnapping. And uh, he is being interrogated and they ask his name. What is your name? They think he's just a guy dressed in a suit, not realizing in the fictional world of this movie he really is Santa Claus. And so his response to what is your name is Chris Kringle. And so he asks again, what is your name? And he says, Sinterklaas. And he keeps going on, Père Noel. And he gives all of these different names of Santa Claus from all over the world. And the reality is the Santa Claus idea uh, come, is all over the world. Almost every culture has some conception of Santa Claus. It's a fun story, isn't it, about a man who uh, is able to come uh, through magic to sneak into your home to give you gifts for being good, spreading a sense of joy and happiness. But it's just a story, isn't it? It's just a story. Nevertheless, that story is rooted in history. The idea of Santa Claus, the myth and the legend of him, is rooted in the real-life story of a man named St. Nicholas. He grew up in the 4th century in what is now the country of Turkey. And he was born to an affluent family, but his parents died when he was quite young, tragically. His parents, however, while they were alive, raised Nicholas to be a devout Christian. And this took root, as we see in his life as he grew up. Uh, the very large inheritance that he gained from his parents' death was largely spent in helping the poor, especially children. He was known for his generosity. He was known for frequently giving gifts to children, sometimes, ironically enough, hanging socks filled with treats and gifts. I wonder where that tradition came from. Perhaps his most famous act, though, of kindness and Christian love was in helping three sisters whose family was too poor to pay for their wedding dowry and with no means of uh, getting married without it, they faced a life of prostitution. Nicholas, however, paid for their dowry, thereby saving them from this horrible life. Nicholas grew to be a well-loved Christian into his advanced age and, in fact, became a leader in the church, obtaining the, the position of the Bishop of Mira. And it was shortly after his death on December 6th, 343 A.D., that the church canonized him as a saint. Eventually, the anniversary of his death became the St. Nicholas holiday when gifts were given to one another in his memory. He remained a very popular saint among Catholic and Orthodox Christians, and his holiday that was made in his honor eventually became combined with the holiday of Christmas since they were celebrated within weeks of one another. Now, we do not come from a Catholic or Orthodox background here at this church. We spring from the Protestant Reformation. And the truth is, in the time of the Reformation, saints uh, became very unfashionable. They grew out of favor with the church because the problem was not so much the, honor, the honoring of people who served the Lord and done much for Him. The problem was it went past honoring them as a means of God's grace to exalting them beyond a proper station in life to venerating them and praying for them. And those in the Reformation Church said, uh, that's just not biblical. 
We need only one mediator between us and God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to Him only. It is only in His name that we pray. Nevertheless, there is not any reason to ignore or to disparage great Christians of the past, people who even bear the title saints like Augustine or Patrick or even Nicholas. In fact, I think it's appropriate to think of Nicholas at Christmas time because he was actually one of the church leaders who attended a very famous church council that focused on defending the person of Jesus Christ. In a real sense, Nicholas defended the meaning of Christmas before there was even a celebration called Christmas. And it's this meaning of Christmas that Nicholas defended that we want to look at this morning. We want to do it from Philippians chapter 2. Now, for those of you that have been here for a while, you'll know that we're in the midst of a regular series. In fact, our sermon note sheet shows us still in that series if we have... As we have been going book by book, seeking to get an overview of each book of the Bible, taking one book per week. And frankly, uh, there was a choice that I faced, and that was, do I want to break from that series and do the Christmas sermon? Do I want to press through? How do I want to do this? Well, frankly, a a great Christmas text is the one that we're going to look at this morning, comes in the book of Philippians. The problem was, in focusing on Christmas, you're not going to get an overview of Philippians. So what do I do? Well, the good news is, I basically already preached the overview message of Philippians. You didn't know it at the time, though, because we called it our 50th anniversary service. If you remember, I preached from Philippians, and I talked about partnership for the gospel with one another, and that's the message of Philippians, partnership for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, if you didn't hear that, buy the tape, get the CD, download it off the internet. That's your Philippians overview. This morning, however, the question I want to ask is, what is the basis upon which we have partnership for the gospel? And when we know that, we will then know the meaning of Christmas itself. So let us look and see what Christmas is all about from Philippians chapter 2. I invite you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God to us this morning. Ultimately, Christmas is all about Jesus. And Paul here gives us four essential truths that we need to know about Jesus if we're going to understand why Christmas is all about Him. So four things that we want to see this morning, four truths about Jesus and about why He is at the center of Christmas. Here it is. Number one, Christmas is about Jesus' deity. Christmas is about Jesus' deity. The Bible is clear that Jesus Christ was more than just a man. He was, He is even today, God. And even here, Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God. He was equal with God. Now, many find that hard to believe today. And again, it's these, frankly, these very words that Nicholas fought for. In the fourth century, you see, there was a prominent uh, church 
a leader named Arius, and he picked up on some, some uh, tidbits here and there that, some, frankly, some false teachers in the early church had taught, and he brought them together and popularized the belief that Jesus Christ was not fully God. Instead, Arius taught that Christ was the first created being that God ever made, that he endued him with some of his glory and used him as the means to create the rest of all things. The problem was, that's not how Christians had historically understood Jesus Christ. That's not how they thought the Bible taught about Him. Therefore, in 325 A.D., a council gathered together in the city of Nicaea to debate this idea, this teaching that Arius was bringing together. And there the scriptures were opened and church leaders went back to the authority of God's Word and determined Arius' view was wrong. It wasn't taught in the scriptures. In fact, the opposite was taught. Jesus Christ was fully God. And with a passage like the one before us, it's not hard to see why. Paul says he was equal with God. In Colossians we read, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. And that Christ upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's what St. Nicholas defended. And I find it very ironic today that, that the, the, uh, the icon of St. Nicholas, the jolly man with the white beard and the, uh, the, the, the red outfit, Nicholas loved to wear red all the time, that he is held up as kind of the great alternative to Christ when it was in fact Nicholas himself who defended the very heart of what Christmas is, Jesus Christ born as God in the flesh. In fact, it is recorded that he became so zealous for the glory of Christ as the divine Son of God that in the midst of a passionate argument at Nicaea, Nicholas, in fact, slapped Arius across the face, declaring him to be a blasphemer. Now, I don't want you to go slapping people across the face. Let me just say that right now, okay? Even if they blaspheme. I know some of you are disappointed. Nevertheless, I want you to understand what Nicholas believed. I want you to understand what Paul believed. I want you to understand what Jesus himself believed and proclaimed about himself. And that is this, that he was God. Christ willingly received worship that only belonged to God. Christ taught with the authority of God. Christ claimed to be the Son of God. More than that, he claimed to be equal with God. In John 10, he says, I and the Father are one. Unless we believe we're somehow mistaken in thinking that Jesus was teaching himself to be divine, Jesus' own enemies believed him to be teaching that. In fact, that's why they were his enemies. John tells us in chapter 10 of his gospel, the Jews picked up stones again to stone Jesus. And they answered him saying, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Over and over again, you can't escape it. Text after text after text from Jesus' own lips. It is clear the Bible teaches Jesus is God. This is what Christianity has been about since its beginning. It is what people like Nicholas and Paul and so many others have defended throughout church history. In fact, it's the very thing that we sing about during this Christmas season. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. 
This is what Jesus is about. He was and is divine. He is God. But he's not just God. Christmas is about Jesus' deity, but Christmas is also about Jesus' humanity. Christmas is also about Jesus' humanity. And we just saw that the belief in the deity of Christ is important. In fact, we will argue in just a few minutes it is essential to knowing that, to believing that, in order for Christianity to exist, in order for there to even be something called a Christian. And if you've been around the church for a while, if you've been born and raised in the church, you know the deity of Christ is something that is emphasized a lot. It's something we make a big deal about. And in fact, many Christians are skilled in showing from the scriptures and defending the reality that Jesus is divine, right? But that sometimes put us, puts us at the disadvantage of fully understanding, of fully comprehending what it means for Jesus to also be fully human. You see, most people are not going to say, oh, he wasn't really a human being. Some do. But most people have the problem believing he's God. And so we've become very good at at trying to understand that and defend that and show that in the Bible. And yet when it comes to thinking about Jesus as fully human, sometimes we falter. Just watch a movie about Jesus. And almost all of them show him as some ethereal kind of gliding on air, uh, oddly uh, um, androgynous, godlike being. He was a man. He was a human being. That's what the scriptures tell us over and over and over again. Paul says, though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He's not just God. He is God in the flesh. We call this the incarnation, which simply means in-flushing. And we get it from John chapter 1 where the apostle says, In the beginning was Christ the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Bible teaches from the moment of Mary's virginal conception by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was there, His divine nature and His human nature forever united in the one person of His being. These natures were never mixed. That is to say, you do not have His deity and His humanity kind of bleeding together like two lumps of Play-Doh forming some new color, some new kind of lump of Play-Doh. No. No, there is no mixing. There is no confusing of the two natures. Rather, they coexist perfectly, eternally in the one person of Jesus Christ. He was, he is, and he will forever be God in the flesh. We think about going to heaven and we think about, we think about God being there, we think about Jesus being there. Understand, just like Thomas, when you stand before Jesus, it will not just be a spirit being. It will not just be some some vague idea of Jesus. You will be able to go and hold the very hands of your Savior that were nailed to the cross for you. You will be able to see and to touch the brow that bore the crown of thorns for you. And there are important implications of that. Last year, one of the people on our music team told me they didn't really want to sing the hymn Away in the Manger. 
They said, either pick a different hymn, please, or maybe write some new lyrics. And I was like, okay, what's the problem with a way and a manger? And ultimately, it was because it wasn't correct theologically. Well, really, it was, I find this line annoying. But behind that annoying line was incorrect theology. What's the offending line? The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Was he a real kid or not? I mean, you wake a baby up from a nap, he's going to cry, right? I mean, when a baby is born, it, he, he needs to cry, right? I mean, I've been, I took high school health class. I saw the birthing videos, okay? I, I was live for three births myself, hopefully a fourth this summer. I know when a baby's born, it cries. And if it doesn't cry, that's not a good thing. And they're rubbing its chest and rubbing its arms and legs and slamming its rear end. They want to get those lungs opened up and yelling and screaming. They want to hear that cry because it says the baby's good and healthy and normal. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. He would have cried when he was born. He would have cried when he needed his diaper changed. He would have cried when he was hungry and when he fell down trying to learn to walk. He had a fully human body. Luke says he grew up into manhood. He got tired from preaching. He needed food and sleep. His hands would have been callous from working with his father as a carpenter. He would have stunk from the sweat poured off his body as he walked miles under a hot Palestinian sun. When he is seeking to teach something to his disciples and he sees this flu-ridden, snotty-nosed kid and he picks him up and he hugs them and he kisses them and he holds them and says to his disciples, you've got to have faith like this kid if you're going to be my disciple. Guess what? Jesus probably would have gotten a cold at least once or twice. This is what Christmas is about. Jesus was as human as a human could be. So when you look at that picture of the manger, when you see the image of the Christ child, do not think of him as some exalted, unfeeling God baby. It's Jesus, fully God, yes, but also fully man. Now why is Christmas all about that? Why can't it just be about Jesus, the God who came as a baby? Why is his humanity so essential and so glorious? It's because of this, number three, Christmas is about Jesus' death. Christmas is about Jesus' death. Now, wait a minute. You may be thinking, this is Christmas. This is the birth of Jesus. You're months early to be talking about Jesus' death, right? Now, no. The reason why we talk about Jesus' death at Christmas is because ultimately he was born to die. His birth is simply a means of going to the cross, Paul says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the eternal God, took on flesh. He became man. He did not grasp hold of the glory of heaven that was rightfully his, that was deservedly his, but instead humbled himself in coming to the earth. And in humbling himself, he wasn't just humbled because he was born as an infant. He wasn't humbled just because he was born to a carpenter and his wife in a stable rather than a king and a queen in a royal palace. No, the whole trajectory of his life is one of humility because it led ultimately to the cross. There is a, a great picture, and although they've got him a little too young, I think, frankly, for the picture, I think that the intent is a good and a helpful one. We know at least by the time Jesus is 12, 
and his parents leave without him and he's conversing with all of the rabbis and all of the Pharisees in the temple and they come back and they're like, you know, why weren't you with us? And he says, I was about my father's business. And by that he means capital F, Father, God the Father. He knows who he is. He knows what he has come to do. And can you imagine as he hears the prophetic words rolled out in the synagogue, as he hears the rabbi reads passages like Isaiah 53, as he hears David describe his own, his own sense of despair in terms of the torture and the agony of crucifixion, and, that his, and then one day his father hands him the nail and says, Son, can you hold this for a minute as he drives the other one in? And Jesus, the 12-year-old boy, perhaps the 14-year-old boy, perhaps even the 18-year-old boy, is looking at this large stake knowing one day these are going to be driven through my flesh. That is why I have come. That's why he came. That's why he took on flesh, was to go to the cross. It was there that Jesus hung in the place of sinners, dying under God's wrath for their sins. And he wasn't just a martyr in that way. He was a mediator. The only mediator, the Bible tells us, that could stand between sinful people and a holy God. Why? Because he was God the Son, holy and righteous in every way. But he was also perfect man, identifying with us in our sin and wickedness in every way. It was Jesus alone who could die to atone for sin, therefore, and make possible our reconciliation to God. You see, knowing that, knowing that is why we can know theology matters. It matters what we think about the person and the nature of Christ. If he isn't fully God and he isn't fully man, there's no salvation. It's done. He can't do it. Because he has to be like us or to identify with us and to take our place. And yet he can't just be like us. Because then his offer, the offering of his life isn't worth anything. He must be perfect like God in order to make reconciliation to God. And yet it's this very thing that so many have found incomprehensible and even offensive. That there could be such a person as God in the flesh. I mean, Jesus' own people didn't like that. We just saw the Jews are saying it's blasphemy. And, and, and Paul would, would point to them and say, but look, our own scriptures have told us this is what is going to happen. God is going to come in the flesh, but they didn't want to hear it. It was too unthinkable for them. And frankly, it's too unthinkable for many today. About this, Baptist pastor and theologian Russell Moore says this, the cross was the culmination, not the beginning of Jesus' identification with us. Jesus walked into a world fallen with sin, a world cursed by thorns, death, and sickness. Though Jesus clearly had the power uh, of sickness in his, uh, had power over sickness in his healing ministry and over death itself, he voluntarily joined us in a world of suffering and pain for the purpose of offering up a sacrifice and restoring human peace with God and nature. This is why Jesus weathered the suffering of temptation. This is why he hungered and thirsted. This is why he experienced the death and desertion of friends. This is why he shuddered in blood-soaked anguish at Gethsemane at the prospect of his execution. And this is why he was beaten, humiliated, and spiked through with nails. Jesus was exempt from no aspect of our human condition except for our rebellion. It doesn't just seem right to us, however, to imagine Jesus feverish or vomiting from illness. But that's precisely the scandal. 
It doesn't seem right to many to imagine Jesus as really flesh and blown, filled with blood and intestines and urine. Somehow that seems to detract from his deity. It surely didn't seem right to many to imagine the only begotten of the Father twisting in pain on a crucifixion stake, screaming as he drowned it in his own blood. This was humiliating, undignified. That's just the point. Jesus joined us in our humiliation, in our indignity. And he did it to bring us to God. Jesus willingly identified with sinners, taking their sin upon himself on the cross and died not for his sins, but for ours. But Jesus didn't stay dead. This is why Christmas is not just about Jesus' deity. It's not just about his humanity. It's not just about his death. But Christmas is also about Jesus' glory. This is the last thing we want to see this morning. Christmas is about Jesus' glory. Christ willingly went to death on the cross for sinners. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus died for sinners, but he didn't stay dead. Just as he predicted, just as the scriptures foretold, God raised Jesus back to life on the third day after his crucifixion. And notice the result. Because he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross for sinners. Therefore, he is now exalted by God the Father as Lord over all things, given all the glory from all creation. And because that is his position now as Lord of all things, Paul says, one day, one day, every knee will bow before him, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In other words, whether you are an angelic being, whether you are a fallen angel, whether you are alive at the time of his return, or whether you have died, everything that has been created, every person will one day bow and confess Jesus is Lord. And it, it sounds on the surface to be like a pretty joyous event. I mean, he rightfully deserves this acknowledgement. But think about what Paul is saying there. Every knee will one day bow. Does that mean that those in this life who have not acknowledged Jesus as Lord, for those that have died never hearing, will, will they, will, will, is basically all of this just a sham because everyone is one day going to be saved? Is that what Paul means? That one day everyone will just joyously say, of course Jesus is Lord. And all of humanity, all of the fallen angels, even Lucifer herself, will all enjoy the glories of heaven? No, unfortunately, that's not what he means. In fact, one of the new songs that we sing, Jesus is Lord, captures this biblical tension well. It's the, the verse that we sing says this, Jesus is Lord, a shout of joy, a cry of anguish. As he returns and every knee bows low, then every eye and every heart will see his glory. The judge of all will take his children home. What the authors are acknowledging is that the day of Christ's return, the day when every knee bows and every tongue acknowledges the lordship of Christ, will be a day of joy for others and a day of anguish and suffering for the rest. Why? Because many will not take joy in declaring Christ's lordship. Those that have rejected Christ in this life, those that have rebelled against God in sin, those that have chosen to worship anything and everything other than God himself will nevertheless be forced to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. 
Even as they suffer an eternal torment of punishment for their sins, they will submit and concede the lordship of Christ. Therefore, Jesus as Lord is not a cry of joy for them, but a, but a cry of anguish and pain as they are continually consumed by their sin, forever knowing that Christ does reign, and yet they hate every second of it. For others, though, the declaration of Christ's lordship will be a shout of joy. It will be a vindication of all that has happened in this life. It will be the final declaration that now all things, including sin and evil and suffering and death, have been wiped out under the glorious reign of King Jesus. That because we have placed our faith in Him, we know that our sins are not to be borne by us anymore, that we do not stand guilty before God, but Christ has won us a place with Himself forever forever and as the perfect king it is him and him alone that will bring eternal joy to our lives this is why i think more than any other christmas song isaac watts surely got it right in the song that we sung this morning joy to the world joy to the world the lord has come let earth receive her king let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing no more let sins and sorrows grow, no thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Christmas is about Jesus' glory as Lord of all things. On January 12, 2007, world-renowned violinist Joshua Bell dressed in casual clothes and stood outside the LaFont Metro Station Plaza in the heart of federal Washington, playing his Stradivarius worth $3.5 million. Days before this, Bell had played at a concert where merely the good seats, not the great seats, not the best seats, just the good seats, went for $100 a ticket. Other times he had played venues where he earned $1,000 a minute to perform. Yet for 43 minutes on this busy morning, over 1,000 people passed through the station and hardly gave him a glance. Despite playing with extraordinary skill and unrelenting passion, only $32 and change found its way into the empty violin case at his feet. Less than five people bothered to stop and listen from the over 1,070 that passed by him that day. Here was one of the greatest violin players in the world and hardly anyone bothered to take notice. Friends, almost 2,000 years ago, the greatest king in all the universe was born. And still today, some hardly take notice. So many have failed to see that Christ, the God-man, the one who died for sinners and was raised to glory as Lord of all things, is what Christmas and life is all about. Jay Packer says the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope for pardon, hope for peace with God, hope of glory. Because of the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. Friends, that's what Christmas is all about. This morning, Jesus Christ is still Lord, and our response will either be one of joyous faith or one of complacent rejection. One response leads to eternal life by God's grace. The other leads to eternal death under God's wrath. 2,000 years ago almost, joy dawned upon the world with the cries of a newborn baby. Let us today believe 
and rejoice and be glad in it. Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We are so thankful for Christ who came and was born to die. Not for His own sins, not as simply a good man caught in an evil world, but as the Savior of the world. And Father, this morning, even in hearing that message, God, everyone is called to come and to trust in Jesus and find joy in Him. Father, there are people here, I'm sure, that have done things that they cannot imagine you ever forgiving. God, some have professed faith in you and walked away. God, some have professed faith in you and they've never meant it. If they're still trusting in what they can do to make themselves right with you. And still others, Father, perhaps for the first time have heard this message, the saving message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for sinners. Father, many more of us have believed this long ago and yet so often find ourselves struggling with a coldness in our hearts that cause us to be casual about sin and lacking in zeal for your honor. Father, to all of us this morning, press home to us this gospel message with clarity, with power. Father, help us to see the great love and mercy and grace and power with which you have sent our Savior into the world who died for us yet lives forevermore as Lord of all things. God, may we now joyfully bow before him, whether physically on our knees, but Father, more importantly in our hearts, acknowledging Jesus is Lord by faith believing He will bring us and make us right with you so that on the final day, we need not fear any sin. We need not fear now any man, for we know we are right with you. Father, what better thing to rejoice in during this Christmas season. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.